this is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. Your hosts, Sam Harris and Nicholas Farik, digest the most interesting, informative and topical books, giving you their biggest insights. We expose different perspectives and tools to look at the world to make you wiser than yesterday. Hello, everyone. This is the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. I'm Nico. I'm joined by my co-host, Sam. And today is going to be a very interesting episode because we're going to be discussing this awesome book called The Elephant in the Brain. How are you doing, Sam? Oh, I'm doing great. I've uh, really enjoyed reading this. Like, I read it like a bit faster than you, so I've had to read it twice because I finished like a few weeks ago and was like, uh, <laughs> you forget things so quickly. It's a nightmare. But yeah, I've been really enjoying going through it a second time, actually, because you sort of pick things up you didn't even pick up the first time. So mm-hmm. I'm already enjoying the process of doing this. And yeah, it's been a fascinating book to read. There's just so many things that you kind of delude yourselves on. And I love anything where you kind of find things out about yourself, where you are lying to yourself about something. So it's been fun. And hopefully this discussion will spark more insights by getting what your brain was thinking about it compared to mine. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is separated in two parts. The first part talks about the concept um, of self-deception and why it's strategic. And the second part is how this is happening in daily life. So how we can see this in our actions, in what we do, but also in some very big institutions, how self-deception is a very big, important factor in daily life. And so there's some uh, interesting key takeaways there. And we're going to end this by thinking about how we can use this knowledge to make our lives better or to become uh, wiser than yesterday. So very, very quickly, the first part talks about the whole concept. And so the the key point of the book is that our brain, the human brain, has evolved and has become a lot different or better or more advanced than that of animals, mainly because we are far more social than most animals. And our brains have adapted to the fact that we're social and have learned to do some tricks and to deceive ourselves in order for us to become more successful when acting in social groups. Mm. And so our human brain um, engages in self-deception in order to deceive or to serve our own selfish motives. And so the, the point of the book is that a lot of things that we do in daily life have different motives than the motives that we think or the reasons we think we do these, these actions. So, for example, when I'm having a conversation and I say something, the the chance is that I'm not saying that to inform the person that I'm I'm speaking to. The reason why I'm saying this is is actually because I want to impress the person that I'm speaking to more than to inform them. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good um, bit where they talk about like if speaking was only about knowledge exchange the first thing you would say is like what's the most useful thing you've ever learned in your life but no one starts a conversation like that and just unpacks like the best knowledge they've ever created it's like oh how are you or whatever just sort of like there's those are different things that you do compared to what would actually be like the optimal strategy for if what it was what you'd think it was for mm-hmm. and in general like think of evolution where like animals evolve claws or something it's just like something to help them be more evolutionary fit and like our brain has literally done that with lots of different things to make us better at ending up having children, essentially. But we don't realize what these things are because they're kind of hidden mm-hmm. in your brain and like it, you know, it's self-deception, you're lying to yourself about stuff. But we're gonna go quite deep into these things before we unpack this all twice. Uh, so, do you wanna go into the second part? Yeah. 
Sounds good. So the second part, the book discusses certain topics in life. So certain habits, certain institutions that are built around the self-deception that is, that is talked about in the book. And so the first one is body language. The book explains that there's a lot of things that we do with our bodies. We don't realize that we're doing, and there's a big reason why we don't realize that we're doing these things. The same with laughter and conversation. There are things that are happening when we're laughing. There are things that we're doing when we're in conversation that we don't realize that actually serve hidden motives. Some other points, some other uh, chapters, Sam? Yes, yeah, so like education. I thought that one was quite interesting, but it's like, it's not necessarily about making you smarter. It's like, it's mostly signaling to show that you have like the capability to be smart. So like what you're doing on your degree or something is maybe not going to be that relevant at all in terms of like a specific knowledge that you learn, but it sort of shows that you have the capacity to sit down and do difficult things for like a few years. And uh, you can technically get a degree for free if you just turn up to the lectures and like actually wanted to learn all the material, but it's the actual certificate that people just sort of, it's just an easy way for them to certify that you are smart or something. It's not actually the knowledge that you gain from doing it. Uh, which is like a whole like institution of like, oh, wait, why are we doing this? <laughs> so there must be just much quicker ways to sort of prove that you can do these things you'd have thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other one that stuck out to me was like giving to charity. Um, as in, you wouldn't really do it if you weren't recognized that much for it. It's sort of, it's more about proving to people that you're like an empathetic, nice human and you're good to have as a friend or like a partner rather than because you really, really want to like change the world with this good deed that you're doing. Otherwise, you mm -hmm. can just do it anonymously. And, but you kind of do all these things just to show that you're like a nice person, mostly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go a bit more in depth in every part of the book. And so one of the key takeaways is that human self-deception serves a strategic purpose, which means that if I do something and I think I do it for a certain reason, chances are that there's actually a hidden motive for this. And this hidden motive is usually that I'm doing something for uh, my own self-interest. For example, when I decide to buy an electric car, I might say to myself and to other people, yes, I'm doing this for the environment. And that actually might be very much a, a big reason why I do this and, and why I buy this car. But actually, What's probably the case is that I'm actually not buying this car for the fact that it's good for the environment. I'm buying this car to signal to other people that I care about the environment. And this is what the book is all about. It is, I'm self-deceiving myself. I have hidden motives. And the reason why I don't know that I'm really buying this car to signal that I'm a good ally to the people around me is because... Um, it's easier to fake. There's more plausible deniability when I believe that I'm buying this for the environment. So if I would know that I'm buying this to impress others, it'd be harder to make them believe that I bought this for the environment. Yeah. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically, if you sort of, if you feel like you're trying to convince someone that you're like a worthy person, person and like you've, it's just like, it just, just comes across ungenuine. Whereas if you just do something because you genuinely believe that you're doing it for that, it's easier to just do it and be like, oh, cool, I've got this car. Yeah. So I think the whole point is it's easier to convince someone about something when you believe that thing as well. It's hard to lie. It's difficult to lie. It costs effort to lie. And that's why your brain actually 
makes you believe in things that aren't true in order to help you convince others that they're true. Mm. I think that's, that's the, the point of the beginning, beginning of the book. And for me, what I found most interesting in this book is that so much of what we do in social environments, we do them in order to impress others. Yeah. And so I've actually noticed this myself that in conversation, quite often I'm saying things not so much in order to share them, but in order to be seen as intelligent or smart or knowing. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I've, I've, I've actually realized that, that I do this quite a lot. So I'll say things that actually are completely besides the point. Yeah. It's, it's not really useful that I tell them. Yeah. The fact that I tell them is for me trying to signal to my conversation partners, oh, yeah, look, you know I, have, I know this, I know this. Yeah. And then the other and way so, around is like, sometimes you'll ask questions that you're not that bothered about hearing the answer, but just to sort of like make the person feel that you're like nice and care about things. But then like, have you ever had the point where you sort of asked someone the same question because you've forgotten what the answer was or something? Because you weren't listening because you didn't give a shit. Exactly. But, you, you, but you ask these things anyway because of like, it's just sort of like a thing that you do to me, make yourself seem nice. And you're yeah. like, <laughs> it's really stupid. Yeah, and, and I do the same. I, but because there's asking a question to seem nice and interested, but there's also asking questions to signal that you're intelligent again because you ask the right questions. Because mm. there's smart questions and yeah, there's silly feeling. questions. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, I, I truly believe that a lot of questions I'm asking is just me signaling that I know how to ask or what is the right question in, in, at that point in time. And, and just to show that, hey, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm a good partner. Mm. And so the, the book uses this metaphor that every person has a backpack. And that backpack is full of tools. Uh, so whenever I tell Sam uh, or Sam wants to to discuss something about a certain subject, and I know quite a lot about that subject, I, I can give him the tool because I have the tool, which is the knowledge of that subject in my backpack. And so everyone has a backpack and everyone has certain knowledge or certain skills in certain fields. And so what we're doing in daily life is showing off our backpack. And so let's discuss something quite self-reflective. Why are you uh, podcasting, Sam? And try and think really honestly yeah. about why you're doing podcasts. Yeah, so as in the, on the backpack analogy, it's like it's two reasons. It's one to increase the value of my backpack because if I'm going out and finding people with lots of with big backpacks and finding the best parts of them, and then, I, and then I'm replicating that in my own backpack. And two, it's to share with the world that I have a big backpack and that it's growing and that I'm going to be like this really useful human to have around, I guess, and that people should listen to me because of my awesome backpack on yeah. that analogy essentially this is why i'm doing it but also you know i'm just curious i like i like doing these things but maybe my curious nature has come from wanting to have a big backpack i don't know yeah it's, like, it's self-deception i need to like get to terms with these things yeah i think that's a, that's a very good and honest answer uh, and i think there's actually a third point in in your case because you interview people with really back, big backpacks right mm. and what you're doing then is also you're associating yourself yeah. With someone who has a big backpack, which shows to me, for example, oh my God, Sam has talked about all uh, to all these amazing people and has good relation with all these amazing people. So he must be an amazing person as well who has a very big backpack. Yeah, it's true. Strange analogy. But yeah, it's sort of working. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about um, something interesting. And so let's talk about some of the examples in the part two of the book. I'll, I can start about body language, which I found very, very, very interesting. So body language 
is a very big part of our communication. And the interesting thing is that we never learn how to do body language or how to read body language. We get so, many, so much uh, teaching in verbal use of language, but almost none in body language. And so one of the reasons for that is that, again, body language has a very, very strategic purpose. And that strategic purpose is plausible deniability. Let's say that I go out to a bar and I, I go to, out to a bar with my girlfriend and some other people. And at some point, I, while going out, see a very attractive uh, woman at the other side of the bar. I can start flirting with her so I can keep eye contact, for example, because I'm interested to gauge whether that person, that woman is also interested in me. There's, there's two cases. Either I look at her from a distance and I use body language to see if she's attracted to me. The other case is I go towards her, I walk towards her and I ask her, hey, I find you attractive. Um, is this also uh, the case? Do you fi also find me attractive? And so what the first, what my body language actions allow me to do is maintain plausible deniability. Mm. So if my girlfriend sees me looking at this woman for a long time, she can come to me and saying, are you flirting with that girl? And I can say, oh no, I was just looking at her. I still have plausible deniability. While yeah, if I walk you up might to even her, be able to lie to yourself a bit about it as well. <laughs> yeah, and I, I probably am lying to myself and I probably am flirting with her, but I don't realize it. And yeah. that is one of the strengths and why is body language so important. It allows us to, to do things, to, to interact with other people while maintaining the option of fully denying it. And no one will be able to prove that I was flirting with her because I could just be looking at her at her hair or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go on to one of the, my favorite chapters in the book, and it's a chapter about conversation. Okay. So I don't know if you have a saying in English, but we have a saying that says, speaking is silver, listening is gold. Right? Where it says that from, from a very um, analytical point of view, it makes sense to listen more than to speak because if you consider knowledge um, as being valuable, mm. whenever you're speaking, you're not listening. And whenever you're speaking, you're sharing information that you have in your brain and yeah. you're giving it for free to someone else. At the same time, if you were listening instead of speaking, someone else would be sharing information and you would receive that information and that'd be of value to you. So following that, it should be, like we should all be listening the whole time because if we're speaking, we're not getting more information. And so we're not gaining anything. And that is, I found that very, very interesting. And so the answer, the reason the book gives is that when you're speaking, you're actually trying to show off the knowledge that you have. I mean, it's, it's the, the toolbox or the tool backpack, the backpack full of tools that we discussed earlier. When you're speaking, you're displaying the information you have and you're hoping that the other will say, okay, that person is a good ally to have. And that is why in conversation, I can catch myself instead of listening to the other person, thinking about the next thing I'm going to be saying. Yeah. And this is a very big mistake that I make. And I know it. And I still do it, although I know it, is that I just want to be seen as a good ally instead of maximizing the knowledge that I gain from, from in being in a conversation with someone else. Mm. And so for me, that was, that was very, very much eye-opening.
this realization. Yeah, definitely. Like the whole time you've been talking, when you first started with doing that, um, the saying that you have, I've been since then. I've wanted to say the saying that you have two ears in one mouth, but like, <laughs> it's sort of is that necessarily the most important thing for me to be thinking the whole time, or should I be mm-hmm. spending more time focusing on listening to you, kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. but it's just something that your brain does because it kind of wants to show that it knows things also, even though technically you should just be only listening. But certainly for me, I did. I was not such of a talker and I definitely did just find it more interesting listening to people than like gaining more knowledge and I've only got but I think it is partly as I've got better at explaining things that I've started to enjoy sharing my knowledge as well more mm-hmm. which perhaps I was always would have enjoyed it but I just wasn't very capable at it which is why I was more curious to find it rather than just because I wanted knowledge who knows yeah. so hard to really know what your brain's always doing but it's definitely mm-hmm. useful to force yourself to like listen more and by like doing podcasts and things, you definitely get better at like just forcing yourself to listen and see where someone's going with their train of thought and letting them finish it off without saying your own thing. Cause of you can find so much more out when you do just sit in the conversation and kind of really just be present and listen to what's going on. And, but instead of it's trying to increase your brain capacity to do that while still keeping a bit of the capacity to always have something useful to say, cause if you, you do mm-hmm. kind of need to have something always useful there but it's just increasing mm. your ability to like actually focus and take everything in it as it's going on. So it, yeah. it's not like you completely ever become fully present and only just sort of listen. Cause if that happened, like when a guest finished talking, I'd be there with like nothing to say. I'm like, right. I don't know what I'm doing, but it's, it just makes you better at that part as well, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's, yeah. Cause yeah, a lot of people say that you are just only listening, which, which you're never really truly doing whatever you think. Um, yeah. it's, it's a funny one. So then there's consumption. And the main point the authors make in this chapter is that a lot of our consumption is called conspicuous consumption. And conspicuous consumption means that we consume things in order to signal more than to um, get benefits from the consumption of, of these things. For example, whenever we let's go to the example of buying an electric car we buy the electric car not so much to get transported around but more to signal to others that we care about the environment yeah it's like the that's also status signaling same as like people buying like fancy watches and things and you can like play the game and try and sort of buy your fancy watch or you can sort of fail at the game by having like not such a good fancy watch or you can just not play the game at all and just get a casio because you just want to know the time and just not really give a shit which is Sort of a side note, that I can't remember if I heard that because somewhere completely different <laughs> to this book, but I remember liking it. But I think I remember from this book, they had the study of people's buying behavior when they're in store or online. And if they're in the store, they're more likely to buy the ethical good because someone will see them buying this, this good thing. Whereas if it was online and they're just getting some toilet roll for the house, they might buy something not so good just because they want something that's like cheaper and does the job and it still feels good. But whether it was like environmentally friendly toilet paper or not, like no one's going to see so much. But maybe if they're going to have visitors, then I'll get the environmentally friendly one because everyone will see their toilet paper if they have the branding and stuff. And so it depends on what it is you're buying and where it gets used and where you are when you buy it that is important, as well as your actual intentions of being a good person, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. People act differently when they're in a social environment when it comes to consuming stuff. There's another one on consumption that I don't know if it's like a completely different chapter, but the one on medicine. The points about that and i remember their 
they give the example of that, like the King Edward or something it was in like the 15th mm-hmm. century who got given, he, he was like taken down with like a fever or something. And then like the doctors, they, they took a few pints of blood and then they, they fed him like this weird, like pigeon poo or something that had been blessed by an angel. And, and then like gave him like some medicine made from like some monkey's brain that was like definitely still alive when they first started cooking it. And then it is, there's some other really weird, horrible things. And, and and eventually they killed him over two days but like they had to do all these things because they're like the most professional doctors that had to show that they're doing all the most cool groundbreaking medical things to help him when all they should have done was just left him in bed and given him some soup and mm-hmm. same way he had to consume these things to show that he was like the strong king that would do everything in his power to like do everything to be healthy and be a good ruler even though actually they're all just killing each other and mm-hmm. you sort of just do things when it comes to consumption to sort of show that you're like trying to do your best in both different ways. And, and then now we spend like way too much money on medicine compared to what actually makes us healthy. Like you could spend like 30% of what we spend on medicine and be like just as good. It hasn't prolonged people's lives, but we need to spend this money to show that we care as politicians to sort of be making people healthy. And we need to, we often take things that we don't need just to show to people that we are able to stay healthy and that we kind of have the like um, assets to make ourselves healthy and things and that we're going to be a good like person to be around because we're not going to be unhealthy and things, even if we are still unhealthy, but we're just taking medicine. So it seems like we're going to be okay, even though the medicine might be pointless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a chapter about medicine and that chapter discusses the concept conspicuous caring where the act of providing medicine is also very much signaling. And so you'll see that people will always overspend on medicine because they want to show to one, the person that they're caring for and the rest of the world that they're willing to um, expend everything for the, the good, the well-being of that person. Mm. So let's say that I'm, I'm, I'm a father and my kid, let's say that he, he gets a cold. Yeah. There's two actions I can take. Either I can say, okay, you have a cold. Let's get you to bed. Let's stay under the sheets for, for a good day. Let's give you some, some hot tea and you'll be better tomorrow. And then there's the other option I can take, which is, oh, let's go to the doctor. Yeah. And so the first, well, the second action, which is taking him to the doctor, shows that I really care about my son and I'll do everything to get him well and better as soon as possible. Mm. While in reality just putting him in bed is probably more effective than taking him to the doctor. Yeah. And so the, the, I think the, the quantitative data that the authors provide is that people that are given some kind of reduction of their medical bills will usually consume more medicine because they pay less in reality. But the data says that they will actually not live longer or not be healthier as a result of that. And this, the whole conclusion of this chapter is that people overspend on medicine, countries overspend on medicine, marginal expenditure is not very useful. So the difference between spending $5,000 a year on medicine and spending $7,000 per year on medicine is very, very small. And so there's no reason to spend $7,000 if you could spend $5,000. That's the whole point that the, the, the book makes. So next uh, very interesting chapter is about art. The whole point of art is that is absolutely non-functional. And what they see is that in reality, art is actually also some signaling. If you're making art, you're doing something which is inherently unproductive. 
because mm. uh, the art that you're making, it's not gonna, it, you can't eat it, you can't use it to do something. It is something that is just nice or something that can be enjoyed. And yeah. so, I was gonna say, go it's, they give the example of like the bower birds that make like the crazy nests that are like completely pointless, but like they put this sort of insane amount of effort into building this like intricate, like huge thing. And basically the bigger nest a guy can build, it shows how evolutionary fit he is because he can do this stupid thing that's really mm -hmm. hard. And like someone that doesn't got mm -hmm. like a good strength and like resources to themselves can't build this. And it sort of, it shows like our, our knowledge of humans and like our capacity to be useful and smart, to be able to make great art, even though it's not actually useful for anyone. It just proves that we are a useful human perhaps. Yeah, it, it, proves, it proves that we're one a useful human, but also that we, we have the time, like all necessary things that we need in yeah, life, which resources. is, exactly. Yeah. So we have everything covered, right? If, if you're able to make art, it means that um, you already have enough wealth to, to eat, to, to sleep, to, to, and you have shelter. And so if those are already taken care of, someone that's, if, if I see an artist, I know, okay, that person it has all the necessities covered, and is able to spend his or her extra time into producing art. And so what artists do is actually art signals to the others, one that you are, so that you're wealthy or capable and you have everything covered. And two, that you also, that you're skilled at what you do. And so they've done tests on people and people appreciate the same painting more when they know that more time went into it. Mm. Yeah, as yeah. In, people don't think art is good if it's just been made by a computer versus exactly. if it was someone done with like sort of a fine like pencil or something, even though it's still the same bloody thing to look at. And you're like, well, wh how, <laughs> what's the point? It's in, you're seeing the same yeah. thing. Why does it matter, technically speaking? But like people feel like it's important if someone's put lots of like dedicated years to their life to be able to do this thing. Yeah. And so there, there is the, the thing about handicapping yourself. For example, if, if you have two statues, one is made out of plaster and the other, is, the other one is made out of marble, people will always appreciate the marble statue more, or at least usually. And the reason is that it's far harder to make a marble statue because when you make one mistake, you have to rework everything because you cannot just you know, fix a mistake quite easily. And so the more difficult it is to make something, the more it signals that the person that did the thing is capable and has mastered their craft and the more we will end up liking it. Mm. And so that's, that's what this, this point in the book talks about. What I also found very interesting, and I think it's in this chapter that they talk about, for example, high heels. Where yeah. high heels are considered very attractive, but they're probably one of the least functional types of shoes there are in the world. The least functional clothes are usually um, seen as the most formal. And yeah. so people limit themselves in their clothing with high heels or big jewelry or back in the old days with corsets, for example, they limit themselves to show that they can go through life with a big handicap and still survive very easily. And this is again, signaling that you are strong and you are capable and you are wealthy. And so again, these kind of things all have a very big signaling purpose. Yeah, definitely. Cool. But then... So and also wearing brands or something like I went shopping with my sister and I'm now wearing a Ralph Lauren jumper, which is like more expensive than any jumper I've ever bought in my life. Yeah. 
All right, you uh, you have some points. The next chapter it talks about charity. Want to want to discuss that? We went into that a little bit already. I think I feel like it's sort of a state to signaling, and we don't want to do it anonymously, so that people like can see that we're empathetic and useful to have around. And mm-hmm. if the if we have the capacity to give charity, it shows that we are more than covered. Again, and then so people feel like if they're around you, you're they're more likely to receive your generosity as well because if you're fine. And it shows that you're empathetic. So if I'm like a partner looking for a mate and I see someone that gives a lot of charity, I feel that I'm probably going to do well out of being associated with them as well if I'm ever in need. Um, I think that's like the main points I had for charity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lesson I learned from this is that if you're a charity, you should make it possible for the, your donators to show to others that they've donated to you. Yeah, like there's bands that used to get as a kid that were like, oh yeah, I've like donated to this thing and it's like a pound, mm-hmm. but like everyone sees that you're like this nice person and everyone has to have one, otherwise they're a dick mm-hmm. kind of thing. And Yeah. Um, and then the final chapter is about politics. I find this one really interesting as well because I've, I've thought about this before I read the book actually. And so it, it talks about the effectiveness of voting, for example. Um, and they see that... Um, in, and they talk about the U.S. because they're, they're from the U.S., but in the U.S. there are some, some states called swing states. And in swing states, the votes of one single person, so let's say that I live in one of the swing states, my vote is relatively impactful. Yeah. Because the chance of my vote uh, deciding the whole election is relatively large. If you look, for example, to uh, a state like New York, in New York, one vote actually um, has very, very little impact or has a very, very small chance of having large impact because in New York, most of the people vote Democrat, I think. And so what they see is that although in, if you compare a swing state to a state like New York, more people vote in New York than people vote in a swing state, which doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about the effect that one single vote has. Yeah, um, but it goes into state signaling, very, so you can say, hey, I voted liberal with all your liberal friends because everyone around you is liberal kind of thing. Exactly. So w- what you're doing when you're voting is actually you're saying, I stand behind this cause and I will take mm. time of, out of my day to go and wait in line to put uh, a piece of paper inside a box, even though I know it makes no difference because, I mean, the odds yeah. of have, it having difference is like one in, what is it, 60 or one in... Yeah. Six billion, billion or something. Yeah, yeah. Reason. Whereas if you have a job, you should either spend like an extra hour doing that job to donate to a charity if you want to make the world a better place by with your actions exactly. at that hour, or you should go and like volunteer at yeah. like a soup kitchen or something. You should actually do something with that hour that's useful as opposed to just like voting just to prove to other people that you voted for this thing. It's exactly. a complete waste so, of your time. Exactly. So what we're doing is we're not voting for a cause, but we're voting to signal to our politic friends or just our friends or our social um, group that we stand behind the same cause as them, which will make our bond closer, which will mm. show to them that we're good allies and strengthen our relationship. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And that is, that is very much what politics is, is, is about. Yeah. And something I was telling you about earlier was like changing my status on some of these dating apps, but like half the dating apps, half the girls in these things are say that they're labor and they wouldn't could go out with some guy that wasn't voting labor. It's quite interesting. So I should probably say that I'm Labour if it just to like make people yeah, like yeah. accept me more. But I haven't bothered doing sure. that. But that would be a useful signaling behaviour for me to do, considering how many Absolutely. people say that. Um, Absolutely. It's, 
it's like what they said about um, apl applying for uh, postdoc positions at universities. If, if you, in these applications, say that you are a Republican, the odds of you getting the position are like super small because almost everyone higher up in the university hierarchy is uh, left-wing or, or democratic. Yeah. And so actually you could use that knowledge to your advantage because if you signal that you are a, a very, very strong Democrat, your odds of getting accepted skyrocket. So, mm. And so this is actually uh, one of the, the interesting takeaways that you can, where you can use it in your advantage. Yeah, because yeah, I should probably try this out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I think this brings us to, the, to, to our key takeaways from this book, like how we can use this book or the knowledge that we gained by reading this book in our daily lives. So or, for me, one of the cool things in the book is that we actually already do a lot of the actions, but we just don't realize it. And so the... Key takeaways from this book come in the form of you realizing that you and others do certain things without really knowing it or without consciously realizing it. And so one of the most important parts that I found is that people are signaling um, in almost everything that they do. Everything um, that people do in a public atmosphere has some kind of signaling purpose. And people constantly want to show others that they are a good ally or a good partner. If, if you're building a business, if you're building a business, you can either, if you're selling a product, you can either sell the functionalities of the product. Yeah. But I think well, what a lot of companies realize is, and what a lot of marketing does is that they make it so that consuming the product actually signals to others is a sort of virtual signal. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's giving me some ideas and other things, but I probably don't have that backwards now. In terms of the book, otherwise, like I think... There's definitely something useful from knowing the behaviors, just sort of seeing when other people are doing them and like understanding yourself better. Because there are things that maybe we could do better ourselves in terms of signaling to others. Like I mean, I could do a better job of talking and coming across the right way rather than mm -hmm. being just so like nosy and asking other people questions, just trying to find knowledge for myself. And oh, I'm trying to think of all the different things we've spoken about now because we definitely did have some examples when we first said talked about what we want to talk about like what was useful for us um and now i can't think of what they are <laughs> great story sam yeah i think that one of the ironic parts about this book is the fact that everything already happens unconsciously the the point of the book is that we deceive ourselves but that deception is strategic because it helps us yeah um, signal or or act as if we have different motives than the ones we actually have and yeah. so the problem is that realizing that you're doing something for other reasons actually might might hurt you when when doing these kind of things because we will be by reading this book less self-deceived about our motives behind certain actions yeah but i guess you could there are some useful things so like you could then work out which are the ones that aren't actually helpful at all and be more useful with them so you could you know if, for example the voting thing you could say that you voted without voting if you're somewhere pointless and go and do something more useful with their time and say, Oh, I've also donated like this much money to the liberal cause or something because of like, that's really useful. Or mm -hmm. when it comes to being green, you could maybe not, you could, <laughs> yeah, you could find ways of sort of signaling in other ways. So you could maybe sort of get some certificates for how many trees you planted or something and put them in your office wall 
besides having mm-hmm. a Prius or they've said, oh, actually, you know, it was going to cost me so much more to like buy this new green car and like waste a ton of resources on building it. I've kept my current car and I've donated all of that money to planting trees and here's all the certificates and this is how green I am. And I'm like five times more green than a person with a car. And like you could sort of make a bit more of a point about it if you wanted, if you sort of knew what it is you were doing or with your kid who was sick, you could say, actually, the chances of them getting more sick when I take my son to hospital are going to be worse for it, even though I am a good husband and I'm looking after our child, but I believe it's better to actually keep him at home and just give him a paracetamol. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you sort of like think about these behaviors and why you're doing them a bit more and the ones that aren't actually optimal, try and not do and be a bit more optimal with them, but explain why it's more optimal rather than just doing the thing to try and explain by doing it is the, is a form of showing instead of doing the better thing and explaining what it is that you're doing when if it doesn't seem like it's the best thing to do until you've explained it. Mm-hmm. A good point. Yes. No, I fully <laughs> agree. And, and one last takeaway I have is that virtue signaling, we discussed before that we know, we both know a person that does a lot of virtue signaling in a very open way. And so it's clearly that they're bragging almost. And so I think that some of the um, unconscious virtue signaling that I do might also be too obvious. And one of the, the takeaways that I have is that it's not always good to do virtue signaling, especially when um, it's clear to your counterparty that you're actually doing that. Mm. Um, so yeah, like humble bragging is now becoming like a harder one because of like people. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. During conversation, I'll probably think twice about what I want to say and think, okay, is this actually adding to the conversation or am I just going to try to seem interesting and seem like a good ally and seem like to have a, a good backpack or a big backpack? Mm, cool. But you don't want to overthink it too much because you might just not say anything. <laughs> Being like a, That's true. A bit of a laser. It's confusing. That's true. That is confusing. Yeah. It's, it's, not a, it's not a simple book to, to one, grasp and two, put into action because yeah. uh, there's no really like life tips in it also i think if if for example let's say that one of us becomes a very very important politician and and is able to reform education for example i think then this book might be useful because reforming institutions is very relevant and so and and what education is one medicine is another but for the moment we're not there yet so (laughs) we can only look at our our own lives yeah Um, definitely yeah i think Uh, i think on a very global level it might make sense Mm, but I think it's a good one to like, I think we've got more, a lot more out of it, reading it, knowing that you've also read it and that we're going to talk about it when you just read it for yourself. Mm-hmm. It sort of just goes, gives you a few things like, oh, this is cool. And then you don't quite know how to talk about it or like, implement it. And it's definitely been very useful to be able to like talk to someone else about it. And I thought it could have been slightly better and unpacked some other things and been more fun to read. So I would have given it more like a five out of 10 in terms of the actual skills as a thing even though it wasn't bad so overall i think i've ended up with like a seven which is a bit um not like a good rate as, how, how do, as in i don't feel like it's a as, as of me personally showing off my thoughts i feel like you should be more polarizing with your you should be like oh, yeah, it's really good or like it's like a five and like a seven is just like oh it's okay like i haven't committed to like an actual answer when you say like mm-hmm. a seven or an eight but that's what i'm doing is <laughs> giving it a seven all right Life. so so for me, as far as how fun was the book to read, I would say that I'd also give it a six because the book in itself could use, I think, more entertaining anecdotes and stuff like that. 
I mean, mm. it's, 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 I found it's very interesting, but not really fun to read. And so when, when it comes to how interesting is the book, which is another rating, I'd give it a nine. And then finally, how much will I be able to use this in my daily life? Although I've realized some interesting points, I do feel like there are other books which would be more useful. So I think in this case, I'd give it a five. Uh, five as far as usability goes. And initially, I was thinking to give it even lower score. But then I actually realized that this might have big potential. Um, yeah, I think if you're in marketing, my it's more useful. If you've yeah. got nothing to do with any marketing or running a business, then I would say it's less. Yeah, Even exactly. though you wouldn't, you wouldn't have read this as a marketing book. And if you were in marketing or something, you probably would just go and buy a marketing book and get more out of it. But I think yeah. the, the most useful behaviors that can come from this are there. I mean, sure, yeah. if you're making huge policy change or something, then perhaps there are some other useful things, but it's, they're all kind of dubious. <laughs> it's, it's funny. All right. Okay. I think that was it. So uh, yeah. thanks for listening. Next week, we'll discuss some other topic that we haven't decided on. So we'll, uh, we'll keep you posted <laughs> on that.